All right, right on. Good morning, everyone. Did you guys like that extra hour last night? Yeah, you feel good. I feel good. All right, we're in uh, Romans chapter 14 is where we are this morning. We're moving verse by verse through the book of Romans, which someone has called the most important book or a letter that has ever been written in human history. And I think I agree with that statement. So what an honor to be able to study it. So we're going verse by verse through it. Today we're in Romans uh, chapter 14, and we're going to go from verse 1 uh, through uh, verse 13 together. As you're turning there, just want to welcome all of you, but also everyone over in Sanctuary 2. And uh, anybody, anybody watching online, and uh, just so glad to be together as a church family, studying uh, God's Word together. I just want to start out like this. Um, what we have in, in chapter 14 is Paul talking to us. Of course, this whole section is about how to uh, fill out or live out the mission statement, my body for God's glory. So we've looked at how to treat other believers uh, we've looked at how our relationship with God, we've looked at our relationship with our enemies, uh, relationship with the non-believing world, and then last week we saw our relationship with the governmental authorities. Uh, but Paul was writing to the Roman church inside the city of Rome, and so they had you know, Christians who had come from like every culture, every background, uh, every demographic imaginable in that city. And so when you become a Christian from all these varying backgrounds, sometimes you have to figure out how do we coexist? How do we actually live together? There are certain things that the Bible is clear and teaches about, and we want to live our lives accordingly. And then there are other areas that are liberties or gray areas that we need to figure out how to appreciate each other and live together in harmony. Otherwise, we're only going to be able to go to churches where everybody looks exactly like us, uh, talks exactly like us, votes exactly like us, is in the same generation with us, you know, stuff like that. So we have to figure this out. And so Paul wrote Romans chapter 14 to deal with that. And there are two major exhortations in this chapter. The first one is, uh, in liberties, do not judge. In liberties, do not judge. And the next week, the second exhortation is, in liberties, uh, you need to uh, make sure that you don't stumble another Christian. Make sure that you're not ruining or wrecking the faith of another Christian, bringing them into sin through your life and the liberties uh, that you are uh, living out. So the, the swing verse that kind of is in between, kind of the, the pendulum that shifts between those two exhortations, exhortations is in verse 13. So that's where I'm going to read and then we'll start uh, from here. He says in verse 13, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So the first exhortation, therefore, let us not pass judgment on, uh, on one another any longer. And then the second exhortation, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So those are the two things that we'll be studying over the course of the next two weeks. So Father, we just come to you. We ask that you'd help us understand your word and apply this, Lord, in our lives. Just the messiness of uh, living out the implications of the gospel in our church, community, and family. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us in it. We thank you, Jesus, for dying for the sin of the world and making a way where we could be not only united to God, but united to one another and where the distinctions so often divide people uh, no longer have to divide us because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So we thank you for that, and we ask that you'd help us, Lord, in applying it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I, I remember when I first started walking with the Lord, 
I was 18, and like a lot of young believers and a lot of people when they first start walking with Christ, I got, you know, I was very passionate, very excited about the Lord. And by the grace of God, I'm 38 years old now, I'm still 20 years later, passionate, excited about the Lord. But by the grace of God, I've grown a little bit since those early days when I was 18 years old. And when I first started walking with him, I went away to a little Bible college, and one of the teachings that I was able to receive uh, a lot about at the very beginning was about the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead, and that he, the Holy Spirit, had you know, gifts that he wanted to give to me and to believers, uh, spiritual gifts that would define us and help us operate, that would enable us to be effective here on earth for the Lord. And so, you know, I began, like, thinking about the Holy Spirit and, like, God, who have you made me to be? And Holy Spirit, what, what are you doing in my life and how have you shaped me and how, what, what, what kind of gifts have you given to me? And then I remember this time where I came home. I think it was for, like, a Thanksgiving break or something like that. And when I got home, I remember very distinctly my parents, who are believers, love the Lord and were especially, you know, I mean, much more mature than me at that stage of my life and still at this stage of my life. But um, I remember coming home and they were doing this thing, them and their friends, they were doing this thing where they were, uh, this was like, you know, in 96. So they were doing this thing where you'd like fill in like the bubbles on a personality profile test and then you would send them away and then they would send it back to you and they would tell you like all these letters, you know, of like defining this is your personality, and this is who, you know, kind of you are, and your leanings, and stuff like that, and have you, I don't know, have you guys ever done that? Have you ever done something? I mean, you can do them online, and stuff like that. Uh, now, I'm an INTJ, just so you guys know, but um, I remember seeing that, and I, I had a really hard time with it. I was upset about it, because I felt like the Holy Spirit, is who, it, he's the one that, that makes you. He's the one that shapes you. He's the one that builds you, and why are you you know, spending your time, like, thinking about this stuff, and I, and I was, like, really upset about it, you know, and, and kind of, like, rebuked them and stuff, and uh, <laughs> they were just so patient. I remember they were just so patient, you know. They're like, okay, you know, that sounds good, son, you know. Well, <laughs> you know better than we do, you know, kind of thing, <laughs> and, you know, years have gone by, and now, you know, I'm, I'm part of my weekly, like, rhythm of life is uh, I'll sit down each week and I'll kind of have, like, an hour or so that I review the week or preview the week that's coming up, answer emails, try to just clear out the inbox and, like, figure out this is what's going to happen this next week, some of the stuff I need to do. But I have a file that once a month or so I'll, re- I'll review, I'll kind of look through it. And one of the things in that file is actually my personality profile, like reports. I like to look at that every once in a while because sometimes it helps me understand maybe some of the things that might be like a weakness of mine or a strength of mine. It'll help me understand when I'm maybe feeling like a frustration trying to fit in a certain box or something like that. And the Lord's, you know, actually like used that in my life. Uh, I think there's balance there. I think you can build a box for yourself. But I'm just saying that that was an area in my life where I just, at that early stage in my Christianity, I felt absolutely no liberty to go in that direction. My parents did. They understood we can be devoted to the Lord. We can be devoted to Christ. This is not a big deal. We're not, you know, doing a thing here where we are restricting ourselves in any way. We want everything that Jesus has for us. We want to get everything that Christ has gotten us for. It's things like that that fit into Romans chapter 14. Because Paul, like I mentioned earlier, here he is writing to a Roman church, 
living in the city of Rome, we make the statement even now, all roads lead to Rome. And that meant that every culture was there, and every generation was there, and every socioeconomic background was there. And you had all these people coming to Christ, and how in the world were they going to exist together? And so Paul wrote Romans 14, which is longer. I mean, the section about how to do this bleeds into chapter 15. It's even longer, much longer than how we're to relate with government. So this is very important uh, in the mind of Paul, how we're to relate and live uh, together. So this is what we're going to look at today. We're going to see that we as Christians are to welcome varying Christian convictions. And so I'm going to talk about that. We're going to see that God is the one who ultimately changes people, not us. And that God regards their convictions so often as worship for him. And then also that God is the judge ultimately in these matters, not us. All right, so we're going we're gonna to just see uh, how uh, it's the Lord's role to change and transform uh, a human life. So let's read the first couple of verses together of chapter 14. This will help us understand what, where Paul's going. He says, as for the one who is weak in the faith, or my version says weak in faith, but some of your versions say weak in the faith. That's probably what his intention is here. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. All right, so Paul is talking about two people here. One, he mentions directly, the person that's weak in the faith, and then the second person is implied, the one who is strong in the faith. And so the question that we would immediately ask is, who is Paul talking about? Who is weak in the Christian faith? Who is weak in the faith? There are a couple of clues that Paul gives in verse 1 and 2. Let's notice the two clues together. He says, welcome the one who's weak in the faith, verse 1, but not to quarrel over opinions. So what that means is that the person that is weak in the faith, clue number one, is that they have strong opinions about certain things in their own life before God. All right, what that helps us understand is that Romans 14 has absolutely nothing to do with the black and white teaching of God's Word. It has nothing to do with the black and white teaching of God's Word. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 through 12, What you'll discover there is that Paul says, we are not judging those that are outside the faith, but we are judging those inside the faith. And if there is a Christian, he says in that passage, who is guilty of ongoing sexual immorality, greed, lying, idolatry, if you see those things, you are to actually break fellowship from that kind of person. So there are certain things in the Bible that are abundantly clear. So adultery is a sin. Homosexuality is a sin. Uh, Drunkenness is a sin. Uh, Lying is a sin. Theft is a sin. There are all these different things that are very clear in God's Word. So we have to get that clear in our minds because I guarantee you there's going to be at least a couple of people that will walk out of here today going, oh man, Romans 14, it's all a gray area, it's all liberty, and we just get to kind of decide for ourselves. No, that's not what he's saying. Paul was a champion of the truth of God's Word. And, you know, I've been trying to give my life to making clear what God's Word teaches. However, there are plenty of things that the Bible doesn't weigh in on, and they are these opinion kind of areas that Paul is talking about. The second clue is found in verse 2. 
He says, well, the weak person eats only vegetables. So uh, you might be sitting next to a vegetarian right now, and you know it, and you want to elbow them or something right like that. But this really isn't talking about uh, that kind of concept. There are two people in the New Testament that fit this description. One of them is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And what you had there is you had people that got saved in the city of Corinth. And they weren't Jews when they got saved. They were Gentiles. And previously, before they were Christians, they worshipped idols, actual statues. And they had all these ceremonies that were attached to that idolatry. And sometimes they would actually offer meat, animal sacrifices to these idols. And then people would then, the priests of those temples would take that meat and sell it in the marketplace. And then the marketplace people would take that meat and they would repurpose it and they would sell it in that marketplace. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talks to the Corinthian church and he says, look, you're going to have some people in your church who came out of that lifestyle. And if, you, if they come over to your house and you put meat on their plate that even potentially could have been offered to idols, they, their conscience might be really offended. And they might be thinking about that old worship system that they were a part of. And you could cause them great harm to their conscience. You might stumble them. So he says you need to be careful about that. Paul made it clear, though, in that passage, he said, but you can't eat the meat. It's really not a big deal. But there are just those whose their conscience can't let them do it. So you need to respect them. Then there's a second group that wouldn't eat meat uh, or it would eat only vegetables, and it would be those who had come out of Judaism, those who had come out of Judaism. Uh, you might remember Peter in Acts chapter 10. He was on the roof of a man named Simon the Tanner, like a porch kind of area. While they were preparing lunch downstairs, he was praying upstairs. And as he was praying, God gave him a vision. And in the vision, he saw all these different uh, forms of animals, that as a Jewish man, he was prohibited from eating. And he saw them coming down in this great sheet, and God spoke and said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he said, not so, Lord. That's, by the way, you don't want to ever say that. <laughs> he said, not so, Lord. You know, I've, ne- I've never eaten, you know, these common uh, and unclean foods. And the Lord repeated to Peter a few times, three times, he said, Peter, what I've, clean, what I've cleansed, you cannot call common. And that was God's way of preparing Peter to come down from the roof and go to the house of a man named Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and to preach the gospel message to these Gentiles. And then later, Peter got in trouble for that from the Jewish believers. They said, we heard you went to a Gentile house and preached the gospel to them. And Peter's like, well, I did, and the Holy Spirit came down upon them. It was very clear that God saved them What was I going to do about it? God made his decision, is what Peter was trying to say. But that was a second camp. Those who had come out of Judaism who couldn't eat meat. And so those are the two descriptions of the weak person eating only vegetables in the New Testament. But here, Paul really doesn't build a case for who it is, but he's just basically saying that person, notice notice how he describes them, they are the one who is actually weak in the faith. Isn't that interesting? Because so often we might think that someone with the restriction is actually stronger in the faith. Actually, the person that's strongest in the faith is the one who understands that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy, which is where we're going to see what we're going to see in verse 17, but then goes beyond that 
and denies themselves their own liberties in order to reach people for the kingdom of God and the sake of the gospel. That is, that's the maturity that Paul uh, demonstrated and that we're going to see especially played out uh, next week. But it is interesting that those who are weak in the faith are the ones who have experienced that need for restriction. Maybe grace hasn't reached that area of their lives. Maybe they're still immature in the faith, or maybe there's a remnant of that old legalism that we all have uh, still existing inside of them. And the exhortation that Paul gives in verse 1 and 2 is really simple. We have to welcome that person. We have to welcome each other. That's it. We have to welcome each other. That's cool. That word welcome is a word that means it goes beyond just... um, like saying hi, saying hello, or giving a high five. It means actually embracing a person, receiving a person. It goes beyond acceptance into reception. I'm receiving you into my life. And the question is, are we able to receive believers with varying convictions in their lives, convictions that might look different from the convictions that we hold? And so this is bringing us to those Area, those gray areas uh, within Christianity. Again, not the black and white issues, but the gray areas of life. So I have a little list here of some things that might fit into this category. You know, uh, the question of, I think we looked at this earlier in the book of Romans, but how is a Christian to relate to television? You know, there are going to be Christians that have varying convictions about this. Uh, the relationship to beer or to wine. Uh, I think even today we have an example of us considering that in the lives of believers. We're going to partake of communion at the end of this service, and when you're holding that cup in your hand, it's going to be filled with grape juice. It's not going to be filled with wine, uh, as it was in, at the Last Supper, but it's going to be filled with grape juice to be sensitive to the convictions and the conscience of individuals. Uh, are you allowed to work on Sundays? Are you allowed to get tattoos or body art? I was at a thing recently where a pastor was up there and he was teaching and he just went on this little tangential thing where he just started making fun of and ridiculing and bemoaning tattoos and skinny jeans. That was this big thing. And actually, you know, to his credit, he got up uh, a a day later and he said, I'm really sorry that I did that. I should not have done that. But immediately afterwards, there were, you know, there were some guys there that that were around. They had, you know, full sleeves, tattoos and everything. I remember one person went up to them and said, you know, hey, man, don't like, don't take that the wrong way. We're so sorry that that came out. You know, that shouldn't have been an issue. And this guy, he was feeling so bad. He said, oh, it's okay. Like, uh, I got all these before I was a Christian. That shouldn't matter. That shouldn't matter. What if he just liked to get some body art? Like, you know, these are areas that Paul is saying the Bible doesn't give us a clarity about. Musical preferences, fashion, politics, how we spend our money, uh, environmentalism, different parenting styles, taking Old Testament Jewish practices and even enjoying them today, like various feasts and festivals, not the sacrificial system, Uh, playing video games, you know, marital calling, the way that we diet or eat, our exercise programs. You know, these are all things that sometimes we can become very rigid and uh, harsh about. Uh, Is a cat a legitimate pet? In the modern era, you know, I struggle with this one. I really, I don't have that liberty, but I know so many of you think that they're adorable. <laughs> so, you know, the thing is, as you bring all these different cultures together, 
Christians from varying cultures together. I remember we had a, when I was growing up, there was a, I, a four or five months where we had a young man come and live with us from a country where it was a shock to him that we had a pet dog. I mean, it was a shock. He's like looking at that dog, and in the marketplaces where he was from, dogs were sold and not as, you know, enjoyable canine friends. Uh, and so, you know, he would ask us all these questions. It was just like a wild and interesting thing to him. I've heard of Christians who have had the conviction that, you know, you, it is wrong for you ever to walk around if you're a married person without having a wedding band on the, on the ring finger of your left hand. And I've met other Christians who have said it is wrong to wear jewelry of any kind. That's the conviction that I hold. Uh, you know, not that I hold, but that, that, that's them talking. I have a ring on my finger. But, um, you know, these are, these are areas, again, that Paul is saying we have to learn how to welcome those who are holding that conviction. The problem is found in verse 3. Let's read it together. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. There, Paul is showing us the tendency of either camp. If you're strong in the faith and you understand that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking and all of that, if you, if you get that, then your temptation, he says there in verse 3, is that you are going to be tempted to despise someone who is living under conviction or restriction in an area of their lives. Again, not, not an area that is clear in Scripture, but, it, but these gray areas of the, of the Christian life. There's a saying that uh, we have where we say legalists. Here's the definition of someone who's legalistic. Legalists are those who live in the terror that somewhere someone is enjoying themselves. And we might laugh about that because, you know, it kind of it makes us go, oh, yeah, that, that is what it is. But the reality is we should not think that of everyone who is under restriction. Some people might be under restriction because there is a history in their lives. They might be under a conviction because of the way that they were raised. They might be under a conviction because of the culture that they grew up in. They might be under those convictions, and rather than just simply slapping the legalist label upon them, we might just want to say it's a conviction that they are holding before the Lord. But that is the temptation for those who are freer, is that they would despise those who abstain. The temptation for those who abstain, Paul mentions it in verse 3, is to pass judgment on the one who eats. To say that's carnality, uh, to call them a carnal Christian, and unfortunately, a lot of times to begin to actually legislate the behavior of other believers. And a lot of times in Christianity, whole groups of Christians can become ruled and dominated by those who have a conviction in a specific area of life. And rather than saying, this is the conviction that I hold, they make it the rule for the entire uh, body of believers. And what uh, what ends up being created then is a distortion of Christianity that smells less like grace and more like the law. And the truth is, we have to remember this, Christianity is narrow enough all by itself. There are so many things in this culture that are totally incompatible with the Christian life. There's so many things you have to walk away from. 
So many things that you have to deny. So many things that you abandon to truly live the Christian life. So to add on to that is, uh, is, you know, and to make it something that we all have to partake of is unfortunate. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Right? So as we're teaching each other, as we're discipling one another, as we're speaking into each other's lives, there is so much that's already so hard about the Christian life. So many things that are incompatible uh, with a true life of devotion unto God. So we have to make sure that if we do abstain or if we are weak in the faith in a certain area, that we don't present that restriction in our lives or conviction in our lives as the conviction that every single believer must have. And I've just found in my own heart, you know, verse 3, I've found that I have certain things that I'm probably strong in and other areas that I'm weak in. You know, when I first started walking with the Lord, uh, there were some things that had to change about my, in my musical interests. Uh, you know, I, had to, I knew right away, like, I, okay, I'm not gonna, I can't listen to music that is glorifying sexual immorality. I can't listen to music that is glorifying violence, you know. So I grew up in the 90s in the um, golden era of rap music, and so there was a lot there that I had to say, I can't, you know, I just can't, I can't put that into my ears anymore. But on the other hand, even though I knew that there was a lot that just as a Christian man, you know, that's, I can't go there. Uh, I also knew a lot of Christians who went all the way to another extreme where they said, you know, God made music for the worship of him. The angelic beings, you know, they were worshiping God. And so music is primarily an instrument that we're to worship the Lord with. So I actually have known believers that the only kind of music that they will ever permit themselves to listen to is worship music. And for me, I just never had that restriction in my life. I've never had that conviction in my heart. I've, I, I enjoy music. I, I like listening to believers who glorify God with their lyrics, believers who are just writing about life in general. And, you know, there's a lot of great music out there that I just enjoy. So it's never been you know, an area for me where I've thought, man, uh, I just can't go there. That's just like too, too much for me. On the other hand, uh, I've noticed in my own heart that I've had to really grow when it comes to my perspective on how other people spend their money. And I, re- I really think that this, has been, this is part of the family that I grew up in, the, the, the kind of just the way that I lived. I lived in a, I've lived in a pastor's home my whole childhood. And it was very commonly understood, we're not going to own a new car, we're not going to have a lot of money, uh, and we're definitely not going to appear to have a lot of money. And, it, and I was very conscious of the thoughts of other people and how they might think about, you know, what we had. And maybe even, you know, as time went on, like a little bit of pride, like, look at this hoopty that we're driving, you know, we're sacrificial or something like that. And so for me, that's like impacted me for sure. I've had to really, you know, I've I've never been like a car guy or anything like that, but I've had to really, you know, come to a place of maturity in my life where when Maybe a friend or a family member, somebody, you know, they get a new ride or something like that, and they're showing me all the features, all the cool stuff. I've had to come to a place in my heart of just being like, that's cool. 
praise God. You know, like I, that's probably not going to be my thing, and I'm a little weaker in this area, but you have to live out your Christian life before God. Obviously, is it possible to spend in a sinful kind of way? Absolutely, that is possible. But I'm just holding out an example of an area where I've had to really grow. Another example maybe is I've never really had a problem if a, if a believer wants to operate in an appropriate kind of environmentalism. You know, I mean, obviously, there's an inappropriate kind of environmentalism where you're, like, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. We read that in Romans chapter 1. But on the other hand, if somebody, you know, is concerned for the environment, wanting to be a good steward, like, I've just never got all rankled over anything like that, you know, and I've talked to Christians who do get all upset about that kind of thing. That's never been, like, an issue uh, for me, but on the other hand, uh, I, it's, I've ne- it's been hard for me to embrace when, like a, when a man is super into fashion. That's like an area that I'm like, oh, bro, you can't do that. Can you do that? But I don't think you have a clear scriptural mandate. This is absolutely not. This is how a man must appear, must dress, you know, things like that. And I think on and on, there are a lot of different things. Parenting styles, musical tastes, a lot of different things that fall into this category, we must watch out. What he says at the end of verse 3 is, God has welcomed him. In other words, if Jesus saved you, if Jesus welcomed you, if Jesus redeemed you, I can rest in knowing I didn't choose you. I don't have to change you. This is the Lord's role uh, in your life. All right, so he goes on in verse 4 and he says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. It's a great question. Paul is asking, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of someone else? We are the servants of God. Now again, I have to remind you, these aren't talking about, this isn't talking about the black and white areas of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 5 makes it very clear. If there is someone that is naming the name of Christ, and they're living in total rebellion against God. If they're living that way, they're living in sexual immorality, living in drunkenness, living in idolatry, they're living in that, then you really just, there's no, there's no foundation for real Christian fellowship. You break apart from one another at that point. But here, Paul is talking again about those gray areas, those areas of liberty. And here he tells us, look, you're a servant that belongs to God. God is your master. And so what you want to do is to be pleasing to him. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 1, I rarely quote this because it's so abused in the culture we live in, but he said, judge not lest you be judged. And the the reason that it's so abused by the culture is because it's almost as if people think that what Jesus is saying is stop even thinking. He's not saying that. In fact, right after it, he says, Figure out the logs in your own eye, pull them out so that you can pull out the speck in your brother's eye. And don't cast your pearls before swine. And don't give what is holy to the dogs. There are decisions, determinations, discernment that a Christian actually has. What he's saying is don't live in this hyper-critical, unnecessary space where you are weighing in on the minutia of another believer's life. He says the Lord, verse 4, is able to make him stand. Sometimes we forget about this, that God, like a father, is bringing us along into maturity. You know, my, my youngest daughter, or my, excuse me, my oldest daughter, she's turning 13 this week. 
And uh, so, you know, that brings all kind of thoughts into your mind and stuff. And I've been thinking about when she, you know, was just early on in her life. When she was born, she couldn't speak. She couldn't talk. There were so many things she couldn't do for herself. But over time, you know, eventually she got to the place where she started gain, gaining her strength to get closer to standing. You know, and I'd hold her little fingers, and I would kind of just, like, prop her up, and she'd stand there, you know, and then eventually be able to go over to, like, a coffee table and pull herself up and stand with that support. And then eventually, you know, like that glorious moment where, like, out in the middle of the living room, she just, like, you know, stood up, you know, and it's just, like, wall wobbly, and what are you going to do next, you know, kind of thing. And then eventually walking. And the father... He looks at us, and he's bringing us along. He's maturing us. He's growing us. And Paul is saying here, look, God is able, the Lord is able to make him stand. It's God who changes people, ultimately, not us. We're involved in the process. We teach. We disciple. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we are servants of the Lord. Now, notice this in verse 5 to, uh, to 7, or 5 to 6. This is massive. He says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. You'd almost expect Paul at this point to say, and here's who's right. You know, because one, they esteem one day as the day to worship, and another esteems every day as for the Lord. And here's who is right. And he kind of weighed in on that in other passages. But here, this is all he says. He says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Two Totally different views, but fully convinced in their mind. Again, not about the black and white areas, but in these liberty kind of areas, he says there should be full conviction. The one who observes, verse 6, the day, observes it in honor to the Lord, or of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Well, the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. This is huge what Paul is saying here. He's saying that God, from his vantage point, he looks into the lives of individual believers. And he can see a person who says, you know what, it's all about Sunday, or it's all about Saturday. And that conviction is so strong in their lives. They can't worship on another day. They can't work on that day. And they're convinced. And then you have another person who says, you know, every day is alike. I just got to make sure that I am making space to honor the Lord with my week and with my life. And he's saying, those two people need to be fully convinced. And if they are, if one is eating and one is abstaining, he says, if they're fully convinced, then they are doing that as honor to the Lord. In other words, what he's saying there is that God regards their convictions as worship. God regards their convictions as worship. You know why they have that belief, God would say? Because they want to honor me. You know why they have that abstinence in their lives? Because they want to honor me. Or that freedom in their lives? Because they want to honor me and what the gospel has done in winning them their freedom. I think maybe a decent example of this is coming next month in December. In every five, seven years or so, we have uh, Christmas falls on a Sunday. And the church always has a big decision to make at that time. What are we going to do? Are we going to have church services on Christmas Sunday? You know, because the day before Christmas, we always have a ton of services for Christmas Eve. We come together, we celebrate the birth of Jesus on Christmas Eve. And so what should we do on Christmas Sunday? 
And, uh, you know, there will be some who say, you know what, like Sunday is a sacred, holy day unto God. And so on that day, I'm going to come and I, you know, I'm going to be there. It's Jesus' birthday after all, and I'm going like, to celebrate Jesus in that way. And then there are other people who are going to say, you know what, every day is alike. On Saturday the 24th, I'm going to hear about Jesus, I'm going to sing to Jesus, I'm going to honor Jesus, and on his actually, actual, you know, the actual day, which of course we understand was not his actual birthday, but on December 25th, that Sunday, I'm going to honor the Lord in my pajamas, in my house, opening presents, you know, with my family or something like that. And, you know, to be honest with you, that is where my conviction is. You know, I've I feel like, well, goodness, I'm going to honor the Lord with my whole life. But on the other hand, I understand, well, for, for one, I understand that there would be those who would say, I would love to have something like that to do on Christmas Sunday. But there will also be people who say, and that is my conviction. It's Sunday. And so we're going to have one service on Christmas Sunday for the, I know it'll be a smaller group, but for that part of the body of Christ who would say, that's my conviction. That's what I'm holding. And what Paul is saying is that all of that, opening presents in your house and saying, Lord, thank you, and coming to church and raising your hands and saying, Lord, thank you, he's saying, if it's done properly in the heart, all of that, under that conviction, is received as worship unto God. And so, you know, this is a powerful thing that Paul is saying. He says, for, verse 7, None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. So in other words, our whole life, it belongs to God, living or dying. And it might even be that what Paul is saying is, sometimes you make the liberty decision to live, and sometimes you make the, might make the abstinence decision to die, like you're dying to yourself. He's saying no matter what you do, you are doing that as unto the Lord. You belong to him. So I think what he's saying there is, man, we really need to think about our lives. And you think about the convictions that you're building. Why do I do the things that I do? What scriptures are there that are helping me navigate this life? As I'm parenting my children, am I, am I going to the Word of God? Am I thinking about the Word of God? Or am I just kind of building this out of the culture that I'm living in? It's important for us to go to Scripture and to build our lives and convictions uh, accordingly. Then he closes in verse 10, this, at least this portion of the exhortation. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or, or why do you... If you're weaker, despise your brother. Or excuse me, that's the stronger that would despise the weaker, would pass judgment. For we will all stand judge before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, this is from Isaiah, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So what he's saying here is, you have a master. And I have a master. And it's God. He will judge us. There is a judgment, of course, that concerns eternal life or eternal death. But that's not the judgment that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about people who have received Christ as their Savior, so they have eternal life. 
But at the end of these temporal lives, we will give an account of ourselves to God. We will stand before God. And what Paul is saying there is that each one, verse 12, will give an account of himself to God. So when I'm standing there before the Lord, he really isn't going to ask me about you. He's not going to ask me, you know, hey, you know, you seemed really close with Pastor Jeff, and I'm just wondering, you know, what do you think about his life? That will not be the question. We might, in our private moments, with people that we're close to, open our mouths and attempt to expedite the judgment seat of God in another person's life, a believer's life. But God doesn't care. What he's interested in is us standing before him. And the convictions that I have, the things that I've assessed, the decisions I've landed on, or the the areas that I've grown in, what matters is, what is the Lord going to say on that day about the convictions that I've held? Will they be things that are like Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, gold and silver and precious stones, things that are eternal? They pass through the fire. Will there be reward attached to those elements of my life? Or will there just be a need for great grace in washing away the things that were folly and inconsequential? So He's saying, look, we're all going to give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, verse 13 Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. That's our exhortation for today, all right? If we're going to actually exist, if we're actually going to be a multi-generational, multicultural church uh, in these grayer areas, not the black and whites of Scripture, not the things that Scripture clearly teaches, and if somebody shows you the Word of God and you see the Word of God for yourself and you see a behavior in your life that is running against the flow of God's Word, you want to correct yourself from that. But in these gray areas of life, he says, we can't pass judgment on one another any longer. But, here's what we're going to look at next week, rather, we must decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And so that's what we're going to look at next week. I was talking to a local pastor recently, and uh, he said something I thought was so true. He said, you know, Monterey is one of the most um, cosmopolitan little towns I've ever been to. You know, because we're a teeny little town and community, but you have all these schools and universities where you have people from varying backgrounds and thought all converging upon this community. You have different cultures coming together. And in a city like that or a little town like that, you know, how can a Christian, you know, operate and regard other believers? You know, can, can you only be friends with Christians who dress exactly like you, talk exactly like you, watch exactly what you watch, or are you able to respect and regard the convictions that other believers have that you don't share? And so Paul is telling us, look, this is how you actually do it. You cease from that hypercritical judgmentalism, and you respect the fact that other people will carry convictions that are unlike yours. Our job is not to make everyone else conformed into our image. 
we want people to be reshaped into the image of Jesus, amen? And so we have to really be careful uh, of this uh, kind of thing. You know, and I think oftentimes, a lot of times where that critical nature comes from is from an insecurity in our own hearts. You know, why aren't you acting just like I act? Does that mean something's wrong with me? Just go to the Lord. Get your conviction and do it and respect those who have done the same. All right, so Lord, we just come to you and we thank you for this incredible tension holding conviction so strongly on one hand. You've not asked us to be an unthinking people, but a people filled with conviction. But on the other hand, welcoming and loving and caring for those who are different from us in the body of Christ. Keep us from sin, of course, Lord, we pray. Help us, Lord, we ask. But give us, Lord, the strength to you know, regard each other, to love one another, and to see that space where we're just called to hear from you, walk with you, follow you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you now for what we get to do here in the taking of communion. We pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us as we eat the bread and the cup. In Jesus' name, amen.